In a recent episode of The Portal, Eric Weinstein was discussing his concept of the DISC, the Distributed Idea Suppression Complex, wherein he said something that stuck with me. He was talking about the limited access many people have to get their ideas across to others, and lamenting what peer review has become. Whereas the stated function of peer review has to do with quality control, he was discussing how it might often be corrupted toward the suppression of important ideas, especially great new ideas brought forward by competing or relatively unknown authors. Weinstein wondered, quote, how many people are sitting on top of intellectual gold that never got its chance to see the light of day, unquote. I have some ideas, some of which I will present to you in this series, that might be gold, or at least might contain important fragments of a treasure map that leads to gold. Or perhaps the partial scrawlings of an alchemical formula for producing gold from otherwise commonplace materials. Since I am an experimental scientist by day, the formation of theoretical ideas is more often relegated to night science. But in the hope of giving my ideas a chance to be considered, I intend to pursue both traditional means of publication and communication by means such as this podcast. In the last episode, I laid out the characteristics of consciousness. Human consciousness is a unified composition of contents. The contents are specific and meaningful, and they exist from a point of view. Human consciousness is continuous in time, and it is limited and coherent. I made the argument that conscious contents must come from some arrangement of action potentials. The world, the material world, does not look like anything, does not feel like anything, does not sound like anything. Sights and feelings and sounds exist only in minds. Ultimately, I pose the question, why do the qualia we experience have the particular character they do? Pondering this question has been very fruitful for me in building my understanding of human consciousness. The qualia that compose my experiences are diverse, but not unlimited in their characteristics. They provide me with a picture, a soundscape, a sensory model of my environment, or rather, this human animal's environment, one that is coherent and predictable. Insofar as my memory can be relied upon, I have had countless occasions to revisit similar qualia in similar situations. For the most part, the qualia are consistent and provide a helpful bearing for me as I attend the daily practices of my human organism. I am not a zombie. But why am I not a zombie? Since I am a conscious mind, I am not a zombie by definition. But why is this organism not a zombie? In The Conscious Mind, David Chalmers argued that a world identical to ours could be conceived wherein all was non-conscious. Chalmers wrote, quote, What is going on in my zombie twin? He is physically identical to me, and we may as well suppose that he is embedded in an identical environment. He will certainly be identical to me functionally. He will be processing the same sort of information, reacting in a similar way to inputs, with his internal configurations being modified appropriately and with indistinguishable behavior resulting." Unquote. I find this reasoning unsatisfying. Chalmers presupposes that consciousness serves no function of its own over and above the mediation between receptor inputs and the behavioral outputs that the zombie twin's brain is carrying out. 
His allusion to functionalism here suggests that the human organism is operating on some collection of algorithms, like a computer. The implication is that consciousness is necessarily an epiphenomenon. An epiphenomenon is like a side effect. It is an effect of a primary physical phenomenon that can have no effect on any physical phenomenon. The argument for epiphenomenal consciousness collapses entirely if the world we live in would be made different by the subtraction of subjectivity. If the universe was of a dualistic nature in which physical things or physical processes could have causality on mental things, but mental things had no means to return the favor, then this might be so. The idea that consciousness is epiphenomenal was supported by Frank Jackson in an article published in the Philosophical Quarterly in 1982. Jackson wrote, quote, Is there any really good reason for refusing to countenance the idea that qualia are causally impotent with respect to the physical world? I will argue for the answer, no. But in doing this, I will say nothing about two views associated with the classical epiphenomenalist position. The first is that mental states are inefficacious with respect to the physical world. All I will be concerned to defend is that it is possible to hold that certain properties of certain mental states, namely those I've called qualia, are such that their possession or absence makes no difference to the physical world. The second is that the mental is totally causally inefficacious. For all I will say, it may be that you have to hold that the instantiation of qualia makes a difference to other mental states, though not to anything physical." Unquote. Thus, epiphenomenalism says that qualia can emerge from, or reliably be caused by processes in the brain, but consciousness does not enable any causality upon the physical world. With an open mind, I can imagine that this might be the case, that I might be no more than a witness to the goings-on in the brain of this human animal. Any sense of responsibility that I have for the behaviors of this animal in the objective world would therefore be illusory. But I will muster an argument against this from a vantage point that is not addressed by any of Jackson's arguments in his paper. In this episode, I will present a novel argument against epiphenomenal consciousness. The argument I am presenting is, as far as I know, unknown in the philosophy of mind. I have never encountered it in the literature. Presumably, either consciousness serves an adaptive function, or it is a side effect of some brain process that is adaptive. In either case, natural selection seizes upon the adaptive advantage, and creatures such as us wind up with consciousness. What breaks this impasse for me is a deeper evaluation of what it is like to be me, a closer inspection of my qualia. I perceive certain colors and shapes in my visual scenes, and those colors and shapes seem to be consistent from one experience of a visual kind to another. So if I see my car in the driveway today, it looks to me like my car yesterday. This consistency of visual perception enables me to comprehend my surroundings. Of course, the human organism needs to respond appropriately to the physical features of its environment. But if I am no more than a witness, then it is unnecessary and superfluous that I should have a coherent understanding of anything. The basic observation extends to all kinds of perceptions, the way certain foods taste compared to others, the way certain objects feel in my hands or textures feel upon my skin, the sound of a certain voice or other common things encountered during the day. 
So stimuli presented to the receptor systems of the physical brain produce consistent effects in my mind. That would be the case even if consciousness were epiphenomenal, so long as similar neuronal network activities produce similar qualia in me. That seems plausible. But what about qualia like pain and pleasure? If the effect on my mind is of no consequence to this animal, it seems a remarkable coincidence that all of the things that are pleasing to me are favored in the behavior of the animal I accompany, while all of the things that are displeasing to me are avoided. Imagine being the impotent consciousness of a person who eats the foods you hate, surrounds himself with sounds and smells that drive you to distraction, vigorously pursues sexual congress with mates you find unattractive, and otherwise behaves in a manner that causes you discomfort and distress all day. In the epiphenomenal case, it would make no difference. Any number of counterexamples can be summoned in contrast to this. Human organisms like salt, fat, sugar, alcohol, sex, compliments, and the esteem of other humans, so do I. I like all of those things. When this human animal behaves in a manner that achieves its evolutionarily determined objectives, I experience rewarding qualia. It feels good to me when this animal behaves in certain ways or when things that are good for this animal occur. By contrast, injury or illness or neglect or social isolation, all clearly against the evolutionary interest of the animal, each are accompanied by unpleasant and horrible qualia for me. If qualia are produced as an arbitrary side effect of neuronal network activities, why aren't the qualia arbitrary? Parsimony requires me to conclude that my consciousness is not an epiphenomenon. The alternative seems a lot less plausible. Suppose, for example, that the brain processing that takes incoming data streams and produces appropriate behavior must produce qualia as a side effect. This would amount to a functionalist description of brain processing that is essentially algorithmic, but with a physics that produces subjective experiences. The qualia produced might be consistent from instance to instance of a similar kind of brain processing, but they could be like anything at all that happened to result from the algorithm being run. I'm not a trained philosopher, but the structure of this argument goes something like, one, if conscious contents were epiphenomenal, we would expect them to have an arbitrary relationship to the brain processes which produce them. Two, conscious contents do not have an arbitrary relationship to the brain processes which produce them. Therefore, three, consciousness is not an epiphenomenon. Imagine a computer that performed all of its operations mathematically. But let's say this computer produces qualia as a side effect of its functioning. It's like something to be this computer. The qualia that are produced in this computer's experience arise as a physical consequence of the kinds of operations it is doing. Unbeknownst to the computer, it was designed to help with various tasks. Let's say this computer is currently being used to track stock prices for an investor. Are we to expect that it feels pleasurable to the computer when the value goes up and disagreeable to the computer when the value goes down? But the same computer is now being used in a laboratory conducting epidemiology research. Now it is tracking death rates in various populations. This time, should we expect the computer to experience the reverse? Pleasure as values go down and suffering as values go up? Either of these cases would be an astounding coincidence since the computer was designed to do math, not to produce qualitative states. 
So the epiphenomenal qualia emergent from the functioning of the, of the computer's circuits could just as well be a visual sense of redness when the numbers go up, or a whistling sound, or a sense of light pressure. They might be anything at all. Likewise, for a brain which evolved by means of selection pressures that reward effective behavioral outcomes. If nervous system evolution was under no selection pressure to produce appropriate qualia, then we should not expect human beings to experience appropriate qualia. When I encounter something which is a danger to my organism, the qualia I experience are of a kind that, if I had the power to avoid the danger by controlling the organism's behavior, I would. If I am an epiphenomenon, why should I have experiences like that? I think consciousness serves a function. Not only do my pleasures and pains accord with the behaviorally instantiated values of my organism, I'm also provided with a useful perceptual representation of my surroundings. I say this is useful in that it orients me psychologically. My mind makes sense to me. I make sense to myself. I know where we are going and why. In fact, I want to go where we are going. I never witness the body heading in the opposite direction of my will. My conscious will is in lockstep agreement with the behavior of my animal. I understand where we are, what we are doing, what might be a threat or an opportunity. It seems to me that this human creature and I are in collaboration. I want what is good for my animal and the animal acts according to my good sense. This line of reasoning strongly suggests that I matter, that I have causal power by some means upon the physical world. Even as I speak these words, I'm struck by the oddity of imagining that the vocal cords of this human animal are moving with just such a sequence of placements as to say into this microphone the precise articulation of my thoughts as they occur to me. Am I to presume that the zombie, that the zombie I accompany is acting in the interest of my thoughts but without having access to my mind or to thoughts of any kind? No, this doesn't seem right. In fact, it seems more likely that my thoughts exhibit causal power on this animal's behaviors. It is less of a question of whether consciousness serves a function and more one of contemplating how it could do so. Motor behaviors require the specific and coordinated activities of neuronal networks. Limb movements, for example, are directed by neurons in the primary motor cortex acting in concert with subcortical networks in the basal ganglia and cerebellum upon the muscle cells of the appropriate body parts. All voluntary movements require neuronal activities in the cerebral cortex, most notably in the frontal lobe. This includes movement of the tongue and mouth when one is speaking. As the mind of this person, I express myself by converting my thoughts into linguistic symbols and phonemes that are vocalized, or broadcast as a physical signal in the form of pressure waves sent out into the environment. It is important to note that I do not know how this magic is done. I do not consciously put the words together or coordinate the movements of my tongue and mouth. If I tried, I would surely fail. Likewise, I do not sequence the movements of my legs when I'm walking or the muscles of my thumbs if I'm playing contra. There are unconscious nervous system mechanisms responsible for much of the behavior we engage in. Christoph Koch calls these mechanisms zombie agents. I recently heard an interesting conversation between Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins on Harris's podcast in which they touched on the subject of consciousness as an epiphenomenon. Harris said, quote, One thing that concerns me about consciousness is that it seems conceivable to me that it's not doing anything, that it's an epiphenomenon which would seem to undercut any selective rationale for it, unquote. 
Dawkins responded, yes, that's right. I mean, when T.H. Huxley, when T.H. Huxley considered this, he likened it to the whistle on a steam engine, which just whistles and doesn't actually provide any propulsive power. Harris said a bit later, it is obvious neurophysi neurophysiologically, and I would also argue that it can be obvious subjectively from the per first person side, if you pay attention, that everything that you are aware of, everything that you are doing, your thoughts and intentions and emotions and perceptions, it's all being generated unconsciously, unquote. Of course, this is the case, and I think Harris is thinking of the zombie agents that Koch described. The error, in my opinion, is in the assumption that the conscious mind does not bring anything further to the table with regard to causality. Suppose we are having a conversation and you ask me a question. I understand your question and produce an appropriate response. Notice that I, the conscious mind, understand your question, and the animal that is standing in front of you produces a response that you, another conscious mind, understand. I do not assume that any network of neurons in my brain actually understands anything. The brain is not a computer and does not operate algorithmically to produce inevitable, calculable responses. My intuition is that my response is generated conceptually. Zombie agents process the incoming sensory data, and by means of thalamocortical integration, I come into possession of an assembly of qualia, which have meaning to me in terms of one another. My willful response is also conceptual, and further zombie agents converted into a behavioral sequence. Comprehending the meaning of data is extremely powerful. Computation to produce comparable behavioral outcomes would be extremely inefficient and absolutely necessary to produce a zombie world that looks like our human world now. In any case, that does not appear to be the way that cognition works in the brain. I hypothesize that consciousness enables meaning to be evaluated directly by compiling sense data into a unity in which the parts can be compared. Each piece of data, each of the qualia, get their meaning because they coexist with all of the others in a coherent way. Many neuroscientists share the intuition that consciousness serves a function. In describing his speculations on the function of consciousness in The Quest for Consciousness, Christoph Koch writes, quote, Natural selection pursued a strategy that amounts to summarizing most of the pertinent facts about the outside world compactly and sending this description to the planning stages to consider the organism's optimal course of action. Such a summary inevitably means that information is lost. In a dynamic environment populated with predators, however, it is usually better to come to some conclusion rapidly and act rather than to take too long to find the best solution. In a world ruled by the survival of the fittest, the best can be the enemy of the good. These few items, labeled with qualia, are then sent off to the planning stages of the brain to help decide a future course of action." Unquote. Koch calls this idea for the function of consciousness an executive summary. While the effect may be that consciousness is composed of a limited and relevant subset of data, I argue that the Crick and Koch metaphor of an executive summary is flawed. It analogizes qualia to labels, which I think is incorrect, and it implies that sense data are actively winnowed down to the most relevant pieces and sent somewhere else. But we know that there is no such place in the brain where all the would-be conscious data are consolidated. What needs to be explained in a complete theoretical account of consciousness in terms of the physical universe is how a conscious mind can tinker with the levers of neurology. 
How do mental phenomena exhibit causality on physical phenomena? We know that the physical universe has causal power on the conscious mind. I claim that the conscious mind has causal power on the physical universe too. Our theory then must account for both. Whether the argument that I have presented here against the epiphenomenality of consciousness will be regarded as a piece of intellectual gold like Eric Weinstein is seeking is not for me to say. But I know that when it first occurred to me it had a powerful effect. I wonder how Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins would receive it. Who knows? Maybe someday I'll have the chance to find out.